So what do you think of when I say the word ancient? You think of maybe history class when you're in school? Maybe you think of a Colosseum somewhere in Rome or you know, some big columns sitting around somewhere in Greece about to fall down on the ground? Maybe you think of a baby blue continental. Maybe a pair of pink sidewinders. Maybe you think all the way back to the age of Jive. I don't know. I don't know what you think of when you think of the word ancient. Maybe you saw in the news this week about William Godori. William is a teenager from Canada. It seems as if he has discovered an ancient Mayan city that has yet to be discovered. He found out that there's 117 Mayan cities that match up perfectly with a chart that the Mayans used to map out the stars. But there was one chart that was incomplete. And so he started doing a little digging around on Google Earth and struck some digital archaeological gold because it seems that he has found a city that matches up with this incomplete chart. They're going to send some folks out there on the ground just to, to, to verify, so to speak. But early initial reports seems like this teenager from Canada found an ancient Mayan city on Google Earth. This is what he said about his research. The Mayans were extremely good builders, but they often built in places that made little practical sense, far from rivers, far from fertile areas. It seems strange for a civilization that was so intelligent. Incidentally, this was all part of his science project for his school science fair. He won first place. Wouldn't you love to be the kid that sat up next to him in the gym? <laughs> hey, what'd you do for your science project? I discovered an ancient Mayan city. What'd you do? I poured diet soda on earthworms and saw how they reacted. The old last-minute science project. <laughs> Don't miss, though, what young William said. He said that a highly intelligent civilization built cities away from what was good for them. That, that doesn't fit, right? I mean, that, that doesn't make Sense. Even a teenager from Canada can look at a little bit of history and a little bit of practical knowledge and go, something's off about that. And yet we do stuff like that, right? We, we distance ourselves from things that are good. We distance ourselves from things that we need. But more than that, many people distance themselves from the place that is actually the best fit for their lives. Somebody has described this place as ancient and sacred and massive. So what is this ancient perfect fit place? What, what is this ancient, sacred, massive place that's good to be near? Jesus was talking to his closest friends one day, and he gave a description of this perfect fit place in the words that he uses. Listen to John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So people would know that these guys were with Jesus 
because of the love that they showed one another. They would know they weren't just casual friends that hung out once a week, but they'd know that they were committed brothers because of how they loved one another. By their love, people would know they were part of the family of Jesus. So, what about today? How would people today know that we are Christians? How would people today know that we love one another? Author Jonathan Lehman wrote a book, and the title of his book was this, Church Membership, How the World Knows Who Represents Jesus. The sacred, ancient, massive place that is the best fit for your life and gives you the good things most needed for your soul is the church. Jesus created the church as the primary place that people would find out about him. Jesus created the church as the primary way for us to know who his family actually is. According to how Jesus taught, these are the things that should not and do not apply to a professing follower of his. Self-sufficient, free-spirited, independent, individual, isolated. That is not Christianity. By definition, Christianity is togetherness. By definition, Christianity is loving one another. So what does that look like? What does it look like to love one another? Well, first we need to make sure we're using the right definition of love. We have to find out what true love really is. So, is it loving for your parents to have food on the table for you? Yes. Is it loving for your parents to help you get an education or or learn a trade? Yes. Is it loving for you to take care of your parents when they get older? Yes. Is it loving to buy nice Christmas presents for your parents and for your family and your friends? Yes. Is it loving for you to tell people, I love you? Yes. But none of those things are definitions of love. So how do we know what love is? How do we define love? 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is how we know what love is. This is how we define what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. Jesus of Nazareth gave his life for us. But Jesus was not just a nice carpenter from Nazareth. Jesus was not just a a good teacher. He was and he is the divine son of God. He goes by names like this, the Prince of Peace, the Lamb of God, the King of Kings. And here's the stunning math. The Prince of Peace was condemned. The Lamb of God was sacrificed and the King of Kings was killed. The person on the earth that least deserved to be sentenced to death was sentenced to death. The person on the earth that least deserved to be murdered and executed was crucified on a cross. Why? Well, first and most, because it brought attention and honor and glory to the love of God. But secondly, because the un prejudice penalty of sin was hanging over my head. 
And the unprejudiced penalty of sin was hanging over your head. Jesus died for you before you existed. There was absolutely nothing in you, about you, or around you that should have ever stirred Jesus to give his life for you, to substitute himself for you. But that's exactly what he did. That's how we know what love is. Whatever other definitions of love you may have, whatever definition of love you found at the movie theater this week, at the chick flick, that's not love. This is love. See, we have reasons for loving other people. I mean, I might love my wife because she's pretty. I might love my kids because they're pretty fun. I might love my friends because they bring me pretty packages of bacon. You feel free to do that anytime you want to, by the way. I might love my friends at church because they laugh at my corny jokes sometimes. But Jesus looked down through history at me. And he saw a preteen boy with acne who was proud and arrogant and wanting to make a name for himself. Someone who really didn't have a love for God, really didn't love God's word. And Jesus looked at me in that moment and he said, Dow, I took your place. Dow, I substituted myself for you. There was a penalty. You couldn't pay it. So I paid it for you. Before the foundations of the earth, this was the plan. And I've carried out the plan. I have taken care of your debt. Dow, come to me. And I did. Why? Because my heart saw true love. The definition of love was revealed to me. Not the surface love that some of us experience in this world. Not the phony love that some of us suffer through. But true love. The love of the perfect king of the universe dying for one of his enemies. That's how we know what love is. That is sacred, massive, ancient, amazing love. So what do we do with it? If you're a Christian, if you're saved, if you have salvation, if you profess to know Christ, what are you supposed to do with his definition of love? Well, he's kind of already told us, right? Back to what he said to the disciples. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how do you know if you're really a friend of Jesus? Sinner's prayer, baptism, even church membership, those are good things. But according to Jesus, the only way someone will know that you're really his friend is the way that you love other Christians. Now, are we supposed to love people who are not Christians? Yeah. In fact, in this immoral age, we need to pray that God would help us to have a greater, more authentic, more genuine love for lost people instead of being mad at them for being lost. We need to love people who are not believers. But Jesus says that the defining way that people will know that you're in his family is by the way that you love other Christians, the unique love that you give to other Christians. Now, will we always perfectly love other Christians? No, 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 no. Will it be hard sometimes to love certain people who profess to be Christians? Yes. But don't focus on the perfection and don't focus on the the difficult people or certain people. 
Let's just think of it generally. Generally speaking, are you known as someone that has cheerful love toward other Christians? Or are you kind of, generally speaking, known as kind of a a casual jerk, you know? Or kind of a casual jerkette that most of the time you're just trying to get your way, you know? Or are you somebody that's always keeping to yourself? And if you're finally pressed by somebody, you say, well, me and God, we got our own thing going. Soren Kierkegaard said this, the difference between an admirer and a follower still remains no matter where you are. The admirer never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays it safe. Though in words, phrases, songs, he is inexhaustible about how he highly prizes Christ, he renounces nothing, he gives up nothing. He will not reconstruct his life. He will not be what he admires, and he will not let his life express what it is he supposedly admires. So, are you an admirer of Jesus? Are you a true follower of Jesus? Or are you a Sunday spectator of Jesus? How would you know Well, one strategic way of finding out is church membership. (laughs) I know you're thinking, bless his heart, he bumped his head on the way in. What in the world? That's crazy. I mean, the Bible doesn't even have the words church membership in there. The Bible doesn't say anything about church membership. It doesn't say anything about a new member's class. The Bible doesn't say anything about constitution and bylaws. The, the, the Bible has nothing about denominations in there. What are you talking about, church membership? How in the world could church membership be a defining part of whether or not I have saving faith in Jesus Christ? Well, you're right. Maybe linguistically and alphabetically you won't find the words church membership together in the Bible. But what you will find in the Bible is pretty loud, clear language about the necessity of a local church and members in a local church. Here's just a few of those examples. This is Jesus, Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile. Imagine this scene. At our next church conference, I get up, welcome everybody, and I say, hey, before we start, I really need to let you know about old, old Ray. I need to tell you about Ray. Ray has been unfaithful to his family. About a year ago, some of his friends went and, and confronted him about him, and, and, and he blew him off. And about eight months ago, he started meeting with a pastor, but, but he refuses to repent. He refuses to change. And so I just need to announce tonight at church conference that we're going to start treating Ray like he's not a Christian. And then I say this. Now, none of you know Ray. You've never seen Ray. Because Ray, well, supposedly he sings in the choir at the Chicken Gizzard United Baptist Church somewhere out on the front of the road in Montana. I mean, without church membership, that is a weird way to obey Jesus' command. (laughs) Yeah, we don't know him, but hey, Jesus said we're supposed to tell it to the church, so why not our church? You know, we'll just do that here. Here's another one, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? 
Now, some of your antenna just went up. Judge? Whoa, wait a minute. I thought it was a sin to judge other people. Listen, if you're a member of this church and you start going around town spraying scarlet letters on people's front doors, we will not be judging you by saying that you're acting like a mean fool, okay? That's not judgment. Judging within the church is seeing there is clear public sin. It is dishonoring Jesus. It is causing problems in the life of the church. And so we would come to you and say, hey, you need to stop spraying people's front doors. And you need to go back and you need to paint those back the right way. And if you refuse to repent over and over again after we go to you and you keep going around spraying scarlet letters on people's front doors, we're going to start treating you like you're not a Christian. That's, that's how the Bible talks about Christianity. But if you're a member of Chicken Gizzard United Baptist Coastal Church out on the frontage road somewhere in Montana... How are we going to know you're spraying somebody's front door? (laughs) It's just not logical that we would get these commands from the Bible and just be all over the place with how we obey them. Here's another one. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Imagine you're at the local Cuban restaurant. You're standing in line waiting to get some, some beans and some rice. Man, if you get a good Cuban restaurant too, there's some good beans and rice. So you're standing in line, and the, the TV evangelist comes up behind you. And he says, hey, buddy, I need you to give me $1,000 because I need to fly to Santa Barbara and get my teeth whitened again by a specialist, and I need some more hairspray, so I need you to give me $1,000 right now here in the Cuban restaurant. And the reason you should give it to me is because Hebrews 13 says that you're supposed to obey the church leaders, and hey, I'm a church leader, so you should obey me. (laughs) That's crazy, right? It makes no sense that we would ask Christians to obey any church leader at any church, no matter what they ask you to do. No, the reality is the only way that we could respect and cooperate church leaders is that we would have to be doing life with them. It would have to be the the local church, the the leaders in our local church, the people that we're actually doing gospel stuff, not not just random people all over the place. In other words, we'd be called to do something with a specific group of people. Now, all of this brings us back to the words of Jesus. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples— if you have love for one another. Yes, we are called to love people who are not Christians, but we are uniquely called to love people who are Christians. We're uniquely called to build one another up and affirm one another. Someone has said this about all those passages we just read. The true intent of each of these commands is to demonstrate to the world that the church in a given locality is a unified family who rejoice together, struggle together, learn together, and grow together. Why should you join a church? Either this one or another one. Why why should you join a church? Well, you should join a church because it's biblical and it's practical. It's even historical. From the very first church, there was some way they, they measured how they recognized the one another's that they were supposed to be loving. There was a functional church membership, even in the first church. Why else should you join a church? Well, you should join a church for protection. What kind of protection am I talking about? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
Years ago, when I was starting out in student ministry, I remember I started telling the kids, giving this description on this passage. The devil does not just want to trip you up on a concrete sidewalk. He wants to trip you up on the concrete sidewalk. He wants to drag your body until you have scrapes all over, until you start bleeding. And he wants to beat your head into the concrete until you die. That's pretty graphic, right? And here's why. The devil hates you. The enemy of your soul hates you. He is a miserable loser. He has no future, but on this earth, he has power. And he wants to use his power to make you miserable to destroy your future. He would love nothing more than for your soul to be tortured forever and ever and ever. And the best place that he can win, the best battleground that he has is your mind and your attitude. And so Peter says, be alert, watch your life. Be alert, watch your life. But here's the thing. Unless you are some modern scientific marvel, you do not have eyes in the back of your head. So there's no way you can always watch your life. There's no way you can always be alert. So praise God that he gave the local church Praise God that he gave us people to do life with, people who are going to watch our backs in the good times and the bad times, a specific group of people. And what does he expect from that specific group of people? Or maybe put another way, what's expected if you're a member of this church or maybe really any church? Well, it could all be boiled down to one word, and that's stewardship. Somebody defines stewardship this way. The daily responsibility of managing your life with proper regard to the rights of others. This is how the Bible puts it. Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfishness but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than even you regard yourselves. So how can you be a good steward? How can you practically be a good church member? I'm just going to give you a few things here to consider. This isn't exhaustive and these are not in order. But things that would be expected of you as part of a local church, part of this local church, and that's that you would attend. Look, we don't give out, you know, attendance badges around here, you know. But, but we encourage you to be here as often as you can. Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, if you have a work schedule, find a Bible study or a prayer group or whatever. We, we want you to be plugged in on a weekly basis. Look, we all have to be away from time to time. But don't let TV shows or hobbies or even too many trips out of town take you away from gathering together with others for worship. Don't interrupt the relationships that you are building with other Christians just for casual stuff. As much as you can, attend. Also, you would be expected to read. You know, the reality is this is how the Bible describes itself, living and active. So if you will commit yourself to the Bible, not only is your life going to grow, but you're going to have a huge influence, a significant impact on the life of this church just from you reading your Bible. We also would expect you to pray. Stay in conversation with God. Again, it is so good for you. But on behalf of our, our prayer group that meets at 4.30, on behalf of, of, of men like Whitey and, and my precious friend who's with the Lord, Bill West, I am so thankful that people pray for this church. We exist because of God's grace through the prayers of his people. Don't ever underestimate the power that your prayer invests 
in the life of this church. We also would expect you to give. Look, God doesn't need your money, okay? He owns the universe. Everything that's in the universe, including everything you own, it actually is owned by God. He doesn't need your money, but God desires to bless your life. He loves it. He loves to bless us. And he has designed as an act of worship a way for you to say thank you for his blessings to you, and that's through tithes and offerings and, and cheerful giving. We, we want you not to steal from yourself the joy of what it means to worship God through giving. We also kind of believe in what we're doing here. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not just whistling Dixie at Holland Avenue. We believe in the gospel ministry that we're doing. We are not going out on the street and throwing up money in the air for anybody who wants to ride by. We're trying to be strategic about how we use money for the kingdom and drawing people to Jesus and glorifying God. So yeah, that stuff costs money and we want you to invest in what God is doing here in the church. We also expect you to serve. Some of us are called to be pastors, teachers. Some of us are called to be nursery workers. Some of us are called to be greeters. Some of us are called to be the person that twice a day calls the prayer line and prays for our church. But all of us have a part. Every single person here has a part in the life of the church. I went into the bathroom of a fast food restaurant a few years back, and I was going in there to wash my hands, and as I went in, there was already a guy there who had already kind of cornered the, the sink, and he was, he was cleaning up. He had a you know, shirt on, T-shirt from the restaurant, and, and he was picking up every little scrap of paper real quick, and, and then he washed his hands, and he took the paper towels, and, and he apologized. He said, I'll be done in just a second. And he wiped the mirror, wiped the counter, put it, man, just really probably took him 12 seconds to do what he did. But he just did that on his way out of his bathroom break. He wasn't in there to clean the bathroom. He was just bathroom break, walking out. I was kind of impressed that he would take the time to do all of that. You know, we we don't live in a world where people work hard like that anymore in the bathroom. (laughs) I was more impressed when I went and sat down and got my food and started eating. I looked up, and there's a big portrait on the back wall. And I found out that He's the owner. (laughs) Listen, let me encourage you to do something. Serve the church like you're an owner. Now, notice I'm not saying be bossy and tell the staff, hey, you're a hired hand and I pay the bills around here, all right? That's sin, okay? Serve like an owner. Serve like this is your church. Now, I want to glorify God in in this place. I I want to be a part of this place. I don't want to always say, go see the pastor. I want to be the Christian who can serve and love and encourage, who can introduce, who can help. This is our church under God's authority. And let's let's love that. Let's love his church. Let's, Let's own it in the way that he's called us to own it. You know what that'll do? It'll probably cost you 12 seconds today. 12 seconds to to meet somebody that's visiting or or 12 extra seconds to talk to somebody you haven't talked to. Or it might might take you 12 more seconds to pick up a piece of trash that you see, you know, when you're walking to your car. But, you know, whatever. Enjoy what it means to be a part of the church. And one more thing that we would expect you to support. Look, I want you to know, uh, man, I can be a big loser sometime. Man, I can make some big mistakes. I, I don't get everything right. And, you know, neither does our staff, neither do our deacons or our Sunday school teachers or anybody else in this church. And we we don't get it all right. 
But by the congregation's approval and, and with God's grace, we, we've been appointed as leaders. So unless we say the wrong thing about Jesus and dishonor Jesus, for the, for the most part, pray for us, encourage us, support us, come alongside of us as we all try to honor Jesus together. I gave you these quotes about nine months ago. They're still good, so I'll repeat them this morning. Kevin DeYoung says this, Find a good local church, get involved, become a member, stay there for the long haul, put away thoughts of revolution for a while, and join the plotting visionaries. Go to church this Sunday and worship there in spirit and truth. Be patient with your leaders. Rejoice when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. Bear with those who hurt you. Give people the benefit of the doubt. While you're there, sing like you mean it. Say hi to the teenager no one notices. Welcome the blue hairs and the nose ringed. Volunteer for the nursery every once in a while. And yes, bring your fried chicken to the potluck like everybody else. Invite a friend to church. Take the new couple out for coffee. Give to the Christmas offering. Be thankful someone vacuumed the carpet. Enjoy the Sundays that click for you. And some of them don't. Pray extra hard on the Sundays that don't. And do not despise the day of small things. Some of you may be thinking, golly, y'all just expect too much. Hey, man, I'm in a customer's always right environment. You're just supposed to make me feel good about being here. Maybe you're thinking there's too much expectation with even how the Bible talks about being a part of the church. There's a story told about a couple, a husband and wife. They hardly ever told each other that they loved each other. There was very little love shown in their marriage. And part of the reason was because of the husband. He had a huge, gigantic, typed-out list of rules and regulations. And he demanded that his wife follow everything on the list every single day. Well, years and years and years went by. The husband died. The woman met another man. They got married. And that man dearly, dearly loved her. One day she was straightening up around the house and she found that typed out list from her husband who had died. And she began to look over that list and she was stunned when she realized that she was still doing all of the same things for her second husband that she was doing for the first with one difference. She didn't hate it. Those things didn't make her mad. Because she loved him, and she knew that he loved her. So serving became a joy instead of a job and instead of rules. Here's what we know from the scriptures. Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. That is how we know what love is. And so let us follow his commandment. Let us love and serve each other in the church. Let us love and serve Jesus. Let us love and reach out to the lost, and let's do it together. We are his church. Let us love one another.